Welcome to the Eurointelligence Podcast. I'm Wolfgang Munchau and with me are Susanne Munchenk and Jack Smith. This morning we would like to talk about farmers and farmers' protests that have sprung up all over Europe. There was a funny scene when Viktor Orban descended on Brussels and he got out of his car and immediately spotted a farmers' protest, which is these days not that hard to spot in, in, in European big cities. And he immediately spotted an opportunity to express solidarity with a populist cause for him and the classic slogan that is the people versus the establishment, as though he was a member of the people. But fa the farmers' protests are serious. They're not just the, the usual. I mean, we've had farmers' protests in, in times past. And I remember when we lived in Brussels, we had a lot of farmers' protests at the time. But they were, they were much more singular. They were about specific issues that, you know, French or Belgian farmers in that particular case had against the government. This is different because it's happening everywhere. Uh, Jack, you wrote about the Farmers' Party, the Farmers' Citizens' Movement, in the Netherlands. It was a strange story at the time. And just I think this is where it started. And it's not where it ended. Oh, yeah, the farm, the farmer citizen movement. Uh, what a story. So if you want to date it back to its origin, you could say that this entire thing basically began with a long running dispute in the Netherlands over what to do about nitrogen emissions. Naturally, when you use kind of nitrogen based fertilizer, some of that ends up getting into the environment, and that can have an effect on ecosystems. This was a problem in the Netherlands for a couple of reasons. One of them is that the Netherlands has quite a large agriculture industry. So it's actually the, uh, well, at least as of last year, it was the, the world's second largest agriculture exporter after the United States. That's one issue. And, and the other issue, as almost all of our listeners will know, is that the Netherlands is not that big. It is a very small country with a lot of people, a lot of farming. And if you want to make more of the Netherlands, you basically have to dump a bunch of soil into the sea. That was the crux of the issue. It got to a point where the government, they, they kind of stalled on doing something about nitrogen emissions, but it got to a point where there was no stalling anymore. And they had to introduce legislation to reduce those emissions. In terms of what this actually meant for farmers, they viewed it basically as unacceptable. And so they started a serious wave of protests which a couple, a couple of years ago, if you remember a, a couple of summers back at times, basically kind of shut down the Netherlands. And eventually it led to this party, the Farmer Citizens Movement, popping up. The Farmer Citizens Movement is going to have at least some sort of long-lasting effect on Dutch politics, if only because in last year's regional elections, they did extremely well. And because they did extremely well, they became the largest single party in the Dutch Senate. This means basically that Uh, it is quite difficult to get anything through the Senate without approval from the farmer citizens movement because they, they hold so many seats there. There, I think the interesting thing is, um, and we'll come to the concept of trade-offs and zero-sum games when we talk about the farmers in a little bit, but, but there you could really see how there was this zero-sum element that pushed the protests in the Netherlands. Uh, but that zero-sum element maybe wasn't money like it is in some other countries. <coughs> Fundamentally, it was land. It was the fact that if agriculture was accounting for a certain amount of nitrogen emissions, that meant that you could not do other things. So it was having a knock-on effect, for instance, on uh, Schiphol's airport capacity. So one of the largest airports in Europe, it was having knock-on effects on housing construction, infrastructure, infrastructure construction. And it was very difficult to say, okay, well, we'll keep the same amount of agriculture, reduce our nitrogen emissions, 
and build all of the infrastructure and housing we actually need to build in this country. And, and that's where you kind of get it now. I, and, and, you know, as well as that zero sum trade off, I think the other interesting thing about what happened in the Netherlands was how the specific grievances of the farmers became rolled into a series of other grievances that lots of other people had. Um, as is the case in most other European countries, farmers actually make up an extremely small percentage of the population, but they were able to attract a lot more support from other people. Now, this, is, this isn't uncommon because a lot of people have attachment to kind of the terroir, to rural lifestyles. But uh, at the same time, there were clearly other grievances with how the Dutch government was handling things. It got rolled into that. And as a result, it gained quite a lot of momentum. How were the concerns of the farmers in the Netherlands addressed? Was it just a protest and we're basically where we were before? Or have any of these concerns been addressed politically? Ultimately, what ended up happening was that the um, the government's planned um, nitrogen emissions reduction law was shelved. The CDA, one of the parties in the previous Dutch coalition, decided that they couldn't go along with it. That was kind of one of the things that ultimately led to Mark Rutte's government collapsing last summer. Now, after the Dutch protests, protests have sprung up in other countries. One of them is France. Uh, this has been a big story in the last week. Susanna, you wrote about it. Yeah. It seems to have sort of come to an end. These demonstrations seem to be quite vigorous. You know, they looked at one point that Paris was being blockaded. Food supply was being a siege, <laughs> was being organized. What happened? What were the causes? How have these causes been addressed by the new government? The protest started about a week ago, and the question is why now? There were two factors. One was that we had a new prime minister, Gabriel Attal, 34-year-old, uh, who just took over the government as a prime minister, and that seemed to have sparked this kind of sense of renewal and um, also the awakening Oh. Uh, when it comes to what's European elections, that was a wake-up call. The other thing was that the Germans, the German farmers, were protesting quite successfully, uh, it seemed at that time. Throughout Germany, uh, farmers were coming with their tractors and were quite organized in the way they did it. And I think the French trade unions were like looking at the, the Germans and saying, well, they can do that, we can do that too. There was kind of this follow-on effect, and all of a sudden we had um, protesters, fa farmers on the streets with their tractors, spontaneously and then trade unions start to organize it and as you said planned for a sort of siege like an eight points around the periphery i think 16 motorways were closed for a while just to make their point that they want to see measures and what was interesting is was this the urgency they displayed everyone was surprised no one was expecting the farmers to come up all of a sudden there's this movement protest movement with such a vigorous determination that uh, took the politicians by surprise. But these also are signs that their grievances have been in the system for quite a while. And if you look at the prices, cost of living, but also over-regulation, not only from the EU, but also from the national uh, part, um, just transposing the EU law seems to have inflated the number of norms they had to adhere to. And unfair competition from uh, competitors from outside the EU. So these were the big grievances for France, which was a bit different from Germany, where the issues were much more focused on uh, diesel tax. Um, the combination of a new prime minister who was keen to impress and keen to put its trademark on and to prevent any form of social unrest as it happened before the, with the Gilets Jaunes. There was, they used that momentum and just to throw in this protest movement and they got Atal to commit to 
as far as you could for the two, three batches of announcements. We don't know yet how the implementation looks like, but uh, these three battles um, of announcements, first of all, it, it also started off with this the diesel tax, the moment that Bruno Le Maire, when he was announcing it, the next day the farmers were actually on the streets, which was very similar from the Gilets jaunes. It also started with a tax on diesel for environmental reasons. And next day, the Gilets jaunes, the, the people were manifesting around France. And that also opened up to all sorts of other grievances and people came together for all sorts of different reasons and it became larger and larger. And that's this is basically the same thing here with the farmers. Though the farmers are much more organized than the Gilets jaunes, they're not as diverse. They have very good organized trade unions. Yes, they cover very different sectors and not all sectors are really affected. Some sectors are faring really well. They actually have a good revenue. Um, it's not all of them that actually suffer. Also, in terms of uh, competition from outside, uh, we're talking about chicken, eggs and, and sugar where prices um, have fallen quite dramatically and, and also where they were overwhelmed from imports from Ukraine where you can really see the impact in terms of price and, and, and quantities. But in other areas, that, that has been less of an issue. Emmanuel Macron has to take this um, unfair competition thing into the European Council and actually make his stance of being against the Mercosur trade deal with the South American countries, where there is a fear that this leads to unfair competition, that they can enter the single market with much less regulation, much less uh, adherence to norms than the European farmers. So they want to have mirror clauses also for all new kind of trade deals that the EU will be making. The European Commission from Brussels already also chipped in the first kind of proposal of how to deal these grievances. Um, these are little tokens that were not really addressing the issue. We are looking at a more big, bigger reform that probably needs to happen again, even if you think about letting Ukraine in with big farms, that to integrate that in a system where um, the big farmers are more subsidized than the small farmers, you would have even more imbalances uh, built on it. So, and the other thing is, is it sets up the, the farmers' movement against uh, the, the regulation, from the, the green regulation that the EU is actually at the, at the moment rolling out. Has anyone in the French government or in the French media or in the French think tank world costed this, costed what, what the Attar concessions will cost? I mean, he's taken back some of the diesel stuff, and uh, I think there was a diesel thing in there, wasn't there? Yeah. Uh, so uh, you know, these things have costs. And they have to be either financed or just not financed. It's, it's one of the things. Is there an estimate or some hint, something broad, or is it too early? Or? What was mentioned today is uh, another 400 million that the Atal was putting on the table. I don't think that includes the, um, the, the stop of the phasing out of the diesel tax break. I see. So um, that would be so talking about one to two billion because the diesel will have been fairly significant. That might well be. Mm. And there are also other things that might actually uh, cost them. I mean, some of the measures don't cost anything. It's just, for example, aligning the the French Food Safety Agency with the European counterpart so that there is not a doubling in norms. Um, these are things that probably shouldn't cost so much but matter a lot for the farmers. Um, but I think in terms of support, also if you think about how do you support them into the green transition, I think this moving forward, it will actually cost more. Yeah. I mean, if you look, compare this with Germany, where you also had farms protests, and I've written about this, and uh, they, they were sort of peaked before Christmas, but they continued in the new year. They dealt with it very differently. You had farmers protests 
very effectively stopping traffic on motorways and in cities. And for the first time, it's very rare for German farmers to protest. It's, it's a, Germany is, a, is much less used to farmers' protest than other EU countries. And for the first time, many Germans kind of heard the grievances. You know, most people are not aware, especially urban dwellers in Germany are very remote from the countryside. Even suburban people, the countryside in Germany is really kind of far away from these, from these areas. The government essentially did not make concessions. It promised concessions in, in Germany. The, the diesel tax subsidy removal for agriculture was a decision that came as a result of the constitutional court's ruling on the debt break. So they had to find savings in a very short period of time. So the government set together in late December to hammer out a compromise. And one of the things they you know, always cut out someone else's money. So since the farmers are nobody's constituency in this particular government, that was the one thing that was not protected. So that went. Commuters' diesel uh, subsidies were not touched. because Yeah, that's the uh, that's the FDP's constituency. Because that's the FDP's constituencies. And so, so everybody had a constituency that uh, that needed to be protected. But the farmers were just, you know, their party, which is the CDU, is in opposition. So that was basically, you know, no one listened to this. And the Green Agricultural Minister his solidarity is also not with the farmers. His solidarity is with the people who have a problem with farmers. <laughs> so the, the result was that the farmers, you know, that we had the protest, there were talks with the government, the, the government basically had the strategy saying, yes, we hear you, we feel your pain, but was sort of. And that was ultimately what happened. No change to the diesel tax and they promised less bureaucracy. Now, for the farmers, the diesel tax was not the cause why they went on strike. The diesel tax was the trigger why they went on strike. The cause is a neglect. For them, bureaucracy as, as is a real problem. We always talk about bureaucracy. It's one of the number 10 point on, on any list. Bureaucracy has now reached a point where several people can no longer conduct business. And that is a, a point, sort of a tipping point for many industries, a tipping point for, but also especially for farmers. Farms are small industries, small companies. Even large farms are by sort of industrial centers, relatively small companies. They may be highly automated. They may have a lot of land, but they're not employing thousands of people. So it's it, these are small companies, mostly sort of you know family-owned businesses that people who have either no experience and certainly no training and certainly no time in dealing with increasing bureaucratic procedures. And the, the EU's Green Deal has come with tons of bureaucratic procedures for the farming community. And that has been the cause of the deep resentment. And when this sort of agricultural tax cut happened like overnight without any consultations with anybody and you know very much in contrast to what to which sort of these decisions usually get taken in Germany with consultations and you know, pa- papers being passed around and time for reaction and you know and uh, all this that, that really triggered them and they and they got very angry but they got nothing and this is the interesting thing um, the Dutch farmers got their law changed the French farmers got pretty much not everything they wanted but you know a good deal it was certainly a I mean I mean the Dutch farmers got a little bit more they they kind of inadvertently brought down the Dutch government. Yeah, and they run the country in, in one sense <laughs> because they have a majority in one of the chambers. Yeah, not a majority, but they have a large enough yeah. pers- you know, proportion of seats yeah. in the Senate to make life very difficult for everybody else. That is not the case with the German farmers. The Germans get pretty much got nothing out of this. But, but then again, you have the debt break because that's a hard constraint and uh, that's not really true for France, nor it was true for the Netherlands. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I you know we, we keep writing about this. Uh, it seems to be nobody seems to worry about much uh, the fact that here we have a crisis. France responds to the crisis by spending two billion. Germany responds to the crisis by cutting two billion. <laughs> and um, the question then becomes, um, what can possibly go wrong here? Because we can say we have slightly different fiscal thing, but France is on a 
basically different universe. The German Council of Economic Experts has just said, okay, our danger is that our debt ratio is falling far too fast, so we have to actually loosen the debt break a little bit. If ever we get to like under 60% or 50% of debt, we can can incur slightly larger deficits. Now we're talking... Yeah, yeah, the, 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 the danger now is that Instead of 0.35%, we're not talking about deficit spending. They're talking about things that will ultimately have no macroeconomic impact or only marginal Whereas France is just heading for, you know, Italian levels of, of mm. debt to GDP. I think there is a dangerous, very dangerous thing. And it's, 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 and it will happen. It's not just because of government planning or fiscal planning, because of something what we just saw, you know, their the protests. absence of planning. It's the absence of planning. And yeah. I think it's also, I mean, you could see in the discourse of Atal, he didn't mention public debt at all. I can see it now popping up more and more in the commentary. So more and more people actually start to wonder what, what happens with the public debt. The, the big date here for the French is the Standard & Poor's rating, which is going to be due, I think, in, uh, shortly before the European elections. So that's the next big date, and that probably we will see some Bruno Le Maire more prominent in this time, around this time, and with some sort of austerity talk, but whether or not right. they're enough. On the assumptions that rating agencies are infinitely and eternally stupid. <laughs> yeah, I, I think, you know, as well, my, my view about why this is happening in France the way that this is happening is also to do with the way that this government or the way successive Macron governments have made decisions, which is to say that often Macron, for better or for worse, he's a very decisive person. Once he gets set on something, he really gets set on it. He wants to do it. And he's a little bit like a freight train. Um, what this means is that he'll end up rushing headlong into something. He'll meet a ton of opposition. And then the only way to deal with the kind of fallout of that opposition is to start buying people off. And that's what we've noticed successively. I mean, the first great example of that was with the Gilets Jaunes. Now, it's an, it, it, to a certain extent, it's an even bigger problem with the farmers, because as you say, Suzanne, unlike the Gilets Jaunes, the farmers are organized. They have trade unions. Those trade unions frequently cooperate with each other. They can basically cause far more havoc than the for longer than the Gilets Jaunes could because the Gilets Jaunes eventually dissipated. I think because you have this kind of process of really rushing into things, you then have to very quickly find some way of placating people uh, when it backfires on you. And that is inevitably reaching for money. To a certain extent, I think there's obviously much less of a willingness to do this in the Netherlands, where people reach for money to kind of buy people off, because that, that's just not as much a part of Dutch political culture. But there is a sense in which I think more as a result of previous government inaction, the government tried to do things too quickly. They went in the opposite direction. What upset people was not just what the government was doing, but how they were doing it. And then it forced them into a reversal, of course. So there's a bit of a lesson here politically that sometimes you have to be quite careful about what you do. For me, the contrast was actually the Dutch managed to get a pension reform through, for instance. It was extremely consequential for a lot of people, but they managed to make it stick by doing this extremely slowly and carefully. Sometimes you rush headlong into something and you don't think about the way it's going to make people feel, you're going to be put in this position. That was the lesson that in this protest uh, was this dichotomy between the urgency with which the farmers wanted to have solutions now, immediately, like the next day, and the solutions that were all kind of long-term, the real solutions 
solutions that we're looking for are all kind of long-term and they're not going to happen overnight because they implicate the um, European Union. They implicate really a deeper, much deeper reform about looking into how the whole market is working or parts of the market or how the tr um, green transition can be done in cooperation with the farmers rather than slapping it on their table. So all these solutions are all long-term and Atal was just uh, hyperventilating and it's probably that's also a kind of character for Macron is a little bit like uh, want to be seen as the man of action and <laughs> the action. Yeah, yeah, exactly. The man, the man on horseback who comes in and saves exactly. the day. Exactly. There's exactly. the, you know, There's the, the man of hero, destiny. Yeah, exactly. That this senior hero image, but that is sort of a, a running counter what actually needs to happen. I think it's very interesting that this farmer's strike that years ago we would probably have dismissed as, you know, some something small and insignificant is sort of touching on a lot of very central policy issues in Europe right now. The leadership, fiscal policy that we just discussed. Another one is the, is the green agenda. Because what I think is the green agenda is in great difficulty right now. And the farmers' resistance to it is one of the reasons. And the farmers are now, you see in the EPP, the center-right group in the European Parliament, seeing farmers as a farmers and other rural population as a, as a potential source of votes and they see the unhappiness about the green deal and i think what happened is and uh, you know and also an interesting sort of aspect of the german uh, this new german party the wagenknecht party on the left or on the right depending on how you want to define this it's very hard to actually place it on those lines it's a bit of both it's, i think you need a two-dimensional political spectrum in order to place that party but in any case it, it, she defined herself in, as a, in opposition to gre the green to the metropolitan elites. This is the, the Brexit thing. And the interesting thing about this is that the Greens made the mistake of failing to co-opt the farmers into the Green Deal. Because what is now happening, if the, if the opposition comes from the farmers, the, the majority in the European Parliament, as we saw with the nature restoration law last July, was tiny, it was just a few votes. It doesn't take a big shift in the European Parliament to uh, overturn these majorities. And from the analysis that we reported on from the European Council on Foreign Relations, they did a sort of a big analysis of, of available polling data and they, and they looked at constituencies. It's hard work to do this kind of stuff and they, and they came up with a conclusion that it's a very big shift going to happen. Not big shift in terms of the, the right will run Europe. That's not going to happen, but it's the a, far right, it's so a the big, right the, far right. the far right and the, 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 the not quite so far right, but still far right. They're all, uh, they're all going to get, they're all going to gain and the center is going to weaken. The Greens are going to weaken. I was looking at the numbers, ID, uh, Identity and Democracy. That's the Le Pen, Salvini lot, and the European Conservatives and Reformists. That's the, the Maloney and rule, uh, Law and Justice lot, plus possibly Orban at one point, especially after... What yeah, that's yesterday. still kind of under discussion. Still I'm not sure where they are. It's not. It's right. But Orban is kind of... We saw when, when Orban and Maloney met yesterday, we saw there this was the beginning of a political friendship. So you have these various... Their total size is projected to be about the same size as the social socialists and democrats plus the greens. That's a power shift. If the far right is the same as what is basically the kind of people who kind of run the show <laughs> next to the EPP, that's a big. It's a big shift. A big shift in votes, and the EPP is split towards in on some of these positions. There will not be. There's still sort of a de facto firewall. And in fact, it has broken down on legislation because the EPP votes with the far right on so many issues. On the European level, we don't actually have a firewall and it won't affect it's going to be the next commission president very much i think von der Leyen is very likely to get it but the on, on legislation it 
people, it will affect the agenda. It's the coalition, right? It's the, how the coalitions are formed. Yeah. One of the interesting things that the ECFR did is actually looking at the restoration law and how yeah. under the rejected seats uh, contribution it would look like. And instead of passing through with a, a thin majority, it would actually be lost with uh, with the margin of 72, I think, MP, MAPs, which is... Um, that's a big majority. That's a big majority. Yeah. I mean, as you guys point out, uh, again, gains for the far right in a European election wouldn't necessarily mean that the far right are running the show because that's not how European politics works. But it does mean that you have to kind of uh, fundamentally, I guess, acknowledge them and they're, they, they have, they're, they're going to end up inevitably playing some role in the power brokerage process. And and that's kind of the key thing here. I think for me, the most interesting situation that any political grouping in the European Parliament faces is the Liberals. Renew. The first thing is that they're on course to lose quite a lot of seats. That looks like it will especially be the case in France and the Netherlands. And the, the second thing... And Germany too, yes. Yeah, the FDP are also... So really, the, the three of the biggest parties in that grouping are not doing well. And the other thing is that the Liberals have always kind of been a coalition within a coalition. You have Nordic and Baltic centre parties who are fundamentally pro-agrarian rural interests parties. You have your kind of FDP and Mark Rutte-style uh, liberal conservatives. And then you have French-style liberals. All of these groups in many of these policy areas that we're talking about, whether it's fiscal policy, whether it's green policy, whether it's even just leadership style and your approach to governance, they have quite different attitudes, but they've all found themselves in this political grouping. And it'll be interesting to see what happens now that it's going quite badly for them. Now now as well, of course, that Mark Rutte is leaving and that and that really leaves Ma- Macron left as kind of the, on- the only liberal left standing. And then you have all of these different splits on the policy issues of the day. I find it interesting that now the Renew has a new head. I think Valérie Heia, she's a farmer's daughter herself. It was consensual. She seems to be a hardworking young I thought it's an interesting choice in a time where farmers' issues come to the forefront and actually to battle this image that the liberals cannot actually talk about farming in in, an, in any sensible way. She, she, de- she definitely brings to the table the credibility. At least there's um, some attempt uh, to break that um, narrative that the, the rural area is only for the right and the far right to uh, to harvest and votes from. An interesting shift that's also happening is that von der Leyen is basing her re-election campaign, re-nomination campaign, whatever you call it, on an alliance with Maloney. Maloney is playing a very important role for von der Leyen because she's kind of the swing vote. If she gets, if she doesn't get the right, any, any votes from the right, there's no way she will get it because the left will not support her, the Greens may not support her. So, so she needs to deep, to reach deep into the right. And, and von der Leyen is a professional politician rather than a conviction politician. So the Green Deal, that was her big thing in term one. If that turns into a great deal in term two, she'd be the last one to have a problem with that. And if Maloney becomes pivotal in this, then it also means that possibly Orban becomes pivotal. And this Auburn has only a few votes, 10 or so, 15 you know, MEPs, something in that order of magnitude, what you can expect next time. But it all adds up. And we are dealing with, at the moment with very marginal numbers in all of the majority. There's small swings can have big effects. And one effect you were talking about to renew. In the ECFR projection, renew was still ahead of ECR, the Maloney Law and Justice lot. 
But if Orban were to join them, they could be actually larger than Renew. So you could have both right-wing groups being larger than Renew. And that is a dynamic that's, that is a very fickle. So you have, you know, a very different, a very different political dynamic going on there. So I'm, there are very interesting, uh, hard to predict. You know, I mean, these yeah, hard to predict elements. I mean, um, putting any of our own personal convictions about Orban aside for a minute, it's an interesting tactical choice for um, Maloney to have to make. Really, the major difference, I think, between the previous commission and the previous European Parliament and Council and the next one is the fact that Maloney is there and she has this kind of influence within the system. So then there are, I think, a lot of questions and a lot of choices she and the people around her will have to make about how best to use that influence. There are obviously opportunities, as you point out, with getting Orban into the tent. Uh, namely that you do become bigger on paper and potentially more influential. Um, there are also risks in the sense that Maloney's position, as I as I see it now, is that she's kind of a go-between between all of these people. And that is part of her value and the power that she holds within this entire matrix, is that she's somebody who has a certain amount of credibility with everybody, whether it's von der Leyen, whether it's Schultz and Macron, whether well, she's it's the new Orban. Merkel. She's the new Merkel. Yeah, 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 exactly. She's kind of, she, she kind of has become the new Merkel in a way. Like, you know, she's somebody who can manage to spin all of the plates and talk to all of these people. And obviously, if you bring Orban, or if, for that matter, if you bring von der Leyen or anybody else in the equation too close to you, you start to jeopardize your credibility with the other people in that matrix. No, that's, that's a consideration. I agree. You know, Orban wasn't the EPP and you know, that didn't stop Merkel and, you know, Merkel didn't want him to leave. So it wasn't, it wasn't, yeah, yeah, but he, it, did, well, it didn't stop, it didn't stop it. I don't think it would stop Maloney. My sense is that being larger than Renew strengthens her position. And she could still play this game, which she seems to be playing quite successfully. So very interesting that she she takes on this role. So it's also interesting how difficult it is to predict future political events, because who would have thought a year ago or two, a year and a half ago that Maloney would A, get elected with such a large majority and then play a role in the EU that like like Angela Merkel occupied and that was sort of she was people always thought even von der Leyen at one page threatened her uh, during the election campaign saying look you know we have we have ways of dealing with people like you uh, essentially what she said uh, <laughs> the tone has completely changed oh uh, uh, yeah, yeah that's also, um, also probably <clears throat> because she's the one she's the the woman in, in Africa she's going going to Africa and looking how to sort out the migration situation for for Europe, for whole of Europe, right? And so far, not so successful. That's so the deal was so Tunisia. That was the initiative of Italy. Didn't go so well, but uh, she's still trying to <clears throat> hammer something off. And she's definitely on the active side and on the more persevering side in this. And she's also the only leader with a future. I mean, Scholz and Macron are both leaders without a future. Macron's future is, you know, can be counted in years. Scholz's can be counted in possibly months. From what we know today, that might change too. You know, he might just you know, you might just discover a completely new side to his character that was completely hidden to, from us. Uh, <laughs> that Scholz, uh, Olaf Scholz, that man of real, man of action. That the real Olaf Scholz comes out and uh, and suddenly starts to talk and communicate. And it's not only we having this problem with him, but people who work with him have this problem. There seems, there seems to be something some some issue with his his style of communication. But one can never say. We've seen what happened in the last election, where two his opponents <laughs> imploded. Could happen again. I mean. Merz, we cannot rely on Merz being holding it. <laughs> yeah, but the under the underlying point is that Macron is term limited, so he has got to leave office by 2027, and who knows what's going to happen to his project after that. 
Schultz and his government are in very serious trouble. Absolutely. And on and even the face they, of it now. And yeah. even, if he, even if he does better the, he, for him to overtake the CDU, which is what it would take for him to be, remain chancellor, is extremely, extremely unlikely given just you know, the distance and the classic polling swings that you have. So Maloney is the one, that was the point you were talking about. Maloney yeah, yeah, exactly. The that, that's the, that's the central point. be there by the end of this decade, whereas the others are not. And so, yeah, yeah. And you know, like you, alliances, she is the one that's probably a good one. I mean, Maloney effectively, the Italian opposition, it's not that they're non-existent, but they're, they're they're pretty close to it. There is no real viable alternative government to Meloni and the right-wing coalition in Italy. Certainly from where I stand today, it is very difficult to imagine any other setup. Obviously, these things can change and often they do change very quickly, but you have to say she is by far the European leader who is in the most secure position. And that's even uh, true right. inside her own party or inside her own coalition because the Lega likes her. Oh, Sal- Salvini had his chance and he blew it. Exactly. But the Lega is also sort of um, divided in groups and she's kind of the mediator between those different groups. Yeah, it, it is kind of interesting they how she's all, almost ended up, you know, being like... They can, uh, they can deal with her better than with any of the of, of her own people. So she is, she is very popular among Lega people too because she plays it well. Uh, and she doesn't she doesn't play tricks on them. It's another sort of con- you know, thing that Merkel had. She was also an incredibly successful coalition builder. I think on this note, we should call it a day. Thank you for listening. Until next week.